Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everybody. I do love a little bit of feedback, so please, please do feel free to be friendly. Um, hi, everyone. My name's Mike, and uh, Julia has mentioned we have the privilege of joining together to, to give leadership along with an amazing team to, to this uh, community here at, at Ballum. So welcome. Hello. Hello to everyone online as well. It's really great to have you joining us today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in, if that's okay, because I only have 25 minutes to talk about suffering, and that is... Um, <laughs> It's, it's basically impossible, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to jump right in, and I want to start with something a little bit unusual, but I feel like it's, it's where, where we need to start today. As I was praying for, for this time together, uh, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, this may sound a little bit strange to you, but we as Christians believe that God exists, uh, firstly, which is why we gather, and we also believe that God is present with us as we meet together. And so this, this picture I had was of Jesus the good shepherd, uh, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd in scripture, walking through the room and meeting with people uh, this morning and, and meeting people specifically in their pain, uh, in their suffering, in the questions that they have, um, in the reality of life as it is right now. And so I, I want to, I don't know if you, this feels a bit presumptuous, but in a sense, I want to give you permission to respond to that. Whatever happens this morning, however you feel to respond, uh, I think it's appropriate to respond in that way. And uh, I think there may even potentially be some tears this morning as we think about and talk about pain and suffering. This is not hypothetical stuff. This is the grit of life. This is real stuff. And we need to allow for all kinds of responses and experiences as we do that. So. Uh, I want to start with that and say I really believe that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, wants to meet us in our places of pain and suffering and our questions about these issues today. So uh, feel free to respond. Today we are going to talk about suffering. I don't, I, I, you probably don't, but you shouldn't envy me uh, the task of doing this. And I'm not speaking about suffering today because I'm an expert on it. I want to say that really clearly. I'm not an expert on suffering. I have experienced suffering, um, but I haven't experienced all kinds of suffering. I probably haven't experienced the suffering of some people here in this room, and I don't, I don't presume to, and I'm not going to speak as if I have. So I'm not an expert on suffering, but I'm also not exempt from suffering. I'm a human being, and as many things as we may be able to sympathize over uh, and about, uh, we can't empathize over everything, right? We, we just simply haven't all shared the exact same experiences in life. We can offer sympathy and condolences, but we, we can't necessarily empathize. But in this particular area, we've all experienced a degree of suffering. Either you have suffered, you are suffering, or you will suffer. And I'm not, I'm not here to be a, a prophet of, of doom this morning, but I'm just naming what is essentially a, a human experience. We are all going to suffer or have suffered or are suffering. So I'm not exempt from that either. And so what I would like to do is to speak as a human being to human beings about this very real experience of being human. And it's a really hard thing to talk about. It's a really, really hard thing to define suffering. 
I think uh, the novelists and the poets and the artists actually seem to capture it best. It's hard, hard to get at it, but they seem to capture it to a degree in a way that we resonate with. One of my favorite poets is a, uh, a man called Tennyson, Alfred Tennyson, and he writes a poem called In Memoriam, where he spends 17 years processing the grief of the loss of a friend. I, I return back to this poem regularly because I feel like it, it just is so, so powerful as an extended process of engaging with the grief that we feel. If you ever want something to help you, that's a good place to go alongside scripture. But sometimes poetry can get us there quicker in some ways. He speaks of loss, the loss that he's experienced, as a kind of calm despair. Another poet, W.H. Auden, uh, famously he was quoted in Four Weddings and a Funeral. I think you might remember this uh, moment. In the final stanza of his poem, he says this. It should come up on the screen. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. Powerful. Powerful words for emotions that we might feel in this particular space. Suffering is, is stifling. It can feel like an experience of suffocation or claustrophobia or of being trapped, nowhere to go. I'm stuck in this place and I don't feel like I can escape. I'm trapped. We cannot attempt to explain it away or reduce it to one size fits all answer. It can't be done. In suffering, what we seem to need is the comfort of another's presence. Someone once said that suffering is not a question that demands an answer. It's not a problem that demands a solution. It is a mystery that demands a presence. I think this is true. I think this is true. Sometimes we just need someone to sit with us in the place of suffering and pain and see us. Allow us to feel the things that we feel. I think this is true. We need sometimes presence, not answers. And yet, at the same time, we also need something to hold up in front of us, to put before us, that helps us to experience uh, perseverance, that enables perseverance in our life. It's one thing to have someone who's a presence to you, present to you and present in the moment of suffering, but it's another thing also to be able to hold on to truth in that space that helps you to move forward and to move through. And so I think we need both presence and truth. We need presence and we need truth. And so in the light of this, what I want to do is I, I want to reflect on three things as we try to look at this question of how could a loving God allow so much suffering? So much more I could say, but I think this at least opens it up, hopefully, in a helpful way that allows us to respond. Firstly, I want to speak to the reality of suffering. Secondly, I want to speak to the challenge that suffering uh, brings up to us. And thirdly, I want to speak of the Christian response of hope in suffering. The reality of suffering, challenge of suffering, and the Christian response to suffering. Is that okay? That sound like a fair enough roadmap? Okay. So firstly, the reality uh, of suffering. So for me, when I think about this uh, topic, this theme, I think of it as so much more than a topical theme. It's, it's a reality. It's something I have experienced personally. In fact, the first person to have shown me uh, that poem by uh, Alfred Tennyson was my grandfather. Sitting together in my room one day, he opened up an anthology of poetry that was lying around in a house somewhere, something I'd never opened up before. Sometimes it takes grandparents to point out these beautiful things. He uh, opened the anthology of poetry 
and, uh, and he opened to this poem that I'd never heard of and probably would never have read, and he read the poem to me, sections of it at least. Um, and it was him, a few years later, who would be diagnosed with terminal cancer and come to live with us in our home for his last six to 12 months of his life. And watching him wither away from terminal cancer was one of the most painful things that, that I've ever uh, witnessed in my life up until that point as a 17, 18-year-old. And uh, something that struck me about him was in his last days, uh, the things that became important to him shrunk um, significantly. It wasn't property. It wasn't houses. It wasn't money. In fact, there were three things that I remember he clung to um, in, in the end of his life. His Bible, uh, a book on heaven by Randy Alcorn, uh, and his family were the three things he seemed to cling to as the things that made it possible to still experience joy and hope in his life. And he, he, wasn't, a he wasn't a grouch, which he would have been fully entitled to be you know, in that situation. He actually, I found his face light. I found his joy real. And you don't lie when you're in that stage of your life. You don't cling to shadows and to falsities. You want to speak about the true things. And so I watched and I listened and I remembered him saying to me, the most important thing that you can ever do in your life, Mike, is to walk hand in hand with Jesus till the end. So that was a visceral experience of seeing suffering up close and personal. But suffering comes in many forms. It could be chronic sickness. It could be strained relationships, loneliness, mental health challenges, the onset of degenerative diseases or sudden death. And we know very well from the pandemic from the last two years, we've had dizzying, dizzying upheaval, loss and chaos. Suffering comes in all kinds of ways. But undeniably, suffering is personal. It touches each of us, either directly or indirectly. And suffering is also universal. Everyone experiences it at some point in their lives. I think we can all agree, based on our experience of this reality, suffering is real, suffering is personal, and suffering is universal. Let's consider the, the, challenging, the challenge of suffering uh, together in the light of it being real, because the reality of suffering is a challenge to us. It provokes us. It stirs up all kinds of things. What do we do with it? How do we make sense of the suffering that we see and that we experience? And while the experience of suffering is not a new phenomenon, it's not something new to the 21st century, it does take on a particular form and has a particular face in our modern times. I think of things like cyber suffering. That might be a surprising uh, sentence to you, maybe. There's a book by a person called Emma Sadler called Selfies, Sexts, and Smartphones. Yep, Selfies, Sexts, and Smartphones. And it describes uh, what the addition of technology to our every single day lives has done. There's both incredible positives uh, that, that technology has brought to us, but it has also, including social media, been as used as a tool to inflict suffering and pain on others. Online predators, cyberbullying, ransomware, revenge pornography, all these things have brought a new dimension of suffering into our reality today. There's also mental health suffering, which could very easily be described as a 21st century crisis. We may be the most connected yet isolated and depressed generation to have ever lived, if the stats are to be believed. Everywhere I go, people struggle with this, from mild forms to clinically diagnosed. 
The WHO reported in 2018 that one in four people in the world will be affected by mental or neurological diseases at some point in their lives. One in four. And then there's systemic suffering. These are just examples of the new face that we are dealing with today. Suffering and evil, evil is not just personal, but it works itself out into the very structures of our society that we find ourselves in. And we are just realizing the consequences of that and responding to them as best as we can today. And so what we see is that suffering is a profound challenge and it can lead us to ask, where is God? Where is God in all of this? G.K. Chesterton said, when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away from him. But in heaven's name, to what? But in heaven's name, to what? See, when we turn away from God or the possibility of God as a, an answer or providing a response, we don't turn to nothing. We always turn to something. And the question is, does that something, is it actually enabling us to respond and to make sense of the suffering and pain that we are experiencing? We don't turn to nothing, we turn to something. And in the moment of suffering, our impulse is to ask, sometimes just a single word question, why? Why? But who are we asking our why to? The problem of suffering doesn't go away if we get rid of God. It's still there. It's not just Christianity that must answer, but every person and every belief system must respond to the reality of suffering in front of us. So what I want to do in, in the time that we have remaining, which is really not much, wow, um, is consider how some of the major belief systems respond to the challenge of suffering. I want to kind of survey very briefly just four of the major responses to the question reality of suffering and then finish off with the Christian response to the reality of suffering. Is that okay? Still, still there? Okay. So firstly, how does atheism respond to the reality of suffering? Well, atheism, or also naturalism, as it's called, is the belief that there's nothing beyond the physical material world. So all that exists is the things that we can see, taste, smell, touch with the senses, that this is the reality that we have. And so we are taught that we are the result of time plus matter plus chance. There's no personal being who guides the process. There's no mind behind uh, what is in the physical world. So what is just is. And the way these processes roll is just the way the natural processes outwork in a world in which the only reality is physical material. And so how, do, how does atheism respond to suffering? Well, it says this is simply the way the world is. It's random and it's bad luck. If you think I'm just making that up, well, Richard Dawkins says it himself uh, in a book called River Out of Eden. He says, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. So atheism doesn't particularly have an answer, and it doesn't particularly supply meaning 
other than looking out at the physical material world and saying, this is the way it is. And if it's going badly for you, we may have compassion, we may find ways to help in that situation, but it's bad luck. It's the way the world is. What a, how does Hinduism respond uh, to the reality of suffering? Well, Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. It's got upwards of 330 million gods in the religion. And uh, their answer is that suffering is an illusion to be transcended. It's an illusion to be transcended. If you are focused on questions related to suffering, you are living in the realm of illusion and spiritual immaturity. To be spiritually mature is to rise above such questions. And this is where the doctrine of karma comes in. The doctrine of karma is, uh, t tells of a faceless system of law that ensures that we get what we deserve because of the things that we've done in former lives. And we must accept this and hope for better in the next life by paying off our karmic debt in this life. But we need to ask a question at this point. If suffering is non-real, then why does it bother us so much? If it's not actually real, why does it cause us so much pain? And is this view livable? It doesn't do too much to comfort the sufferer or the questioner. Buddhism sees it slightly differently. Buddhism comes out of Hinduism, and it actually takes suffering very seriously as a real phenomenon, as a reality. And it says to deal with suffering, we must follow the four noble truths. And here they are on the screen. The first truth is all of life is suffering. Secondly, we suffer because of desire, worldly attachment. We attach ourselves to things, and because we do that, we suffer. So thirdly, suffering is overcome by extinguishing desire. And we do this by following the Eightfold Noble Path, which is presented as the answer to all of this. If we do, we graduate to nirvana, which is a state of total detachment, of desirelessness. So Buddhism's answer is that we must escape from desire altogether because desire is what produces suffering and pain in our world. And Buddha was true to this. On the night that his wife uh, gave birth to his son, he fled into the woods to seek enlightenment and never returned to his family. He held to his particular philosophy. What about Islam? According to Islam, everything is the direct will of Allah, inshallah, our Muslim friends say, which is their way of saying, if God wills it, it will happen. There's only one will in the universe, which is Allah's will. This will is both the source of good and evil. So the appropriate response is to accept Allah's will for better or for worse, not to question it, not to ask questions of it. So Islam's answer is to say that it's unjust to question Allah, even in suffering. His will must be accepted. So I'm, I'm not trying to uh, paint any specific uh, Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist in a bad light at all. I know many compassionate, kind uh, individuals within each of those faiths who are doing a lot to alleviate suffering. What I'm trying to do is contrast the belief systems themselves and what those beliefs ultimately say about our response to suffering. And so we have that summary there. Atheism says it's the way it is. Hinduism says it's an illusion. Buddhism says we must escape. Islam says, inshallah. And so what does Christianity say to the question of suffering? 
What is the Christian response to this reality that we know and that we can name? In all of these responses to suffering, the why question remains unanswered. But Christianity, I would submit to you this morning, welcomes and speaks to the question. It welcomes the question and it speaks to it powerfully. The first thing it would say is that the Christian God fully acknowledges suffering and evil. Suffering and evil are real. They are there. They're not illusions to be transcended. They're not simply uh, there to be escaped. And what we see is that Christianity affirms that feeling that we have, that intuitive feeling that ultimately something is wrong in the world. That feeling that things are not the way that they should be. Christianity would say that feeling that you have, that intuition, that there's a better way, is right. It speaks of a moment, a creation, where God had created a particular plan for his creation, a plan for flourishing, of harmonious relationships, of people not hurting each other but serving each other. But what happened after the point of creation is humanity chose to go another way. Instead of worshipping and looking to God as the source of reality, they started to look to themselves, to set themselves up as the gods of their own life. And what happened from that point is the beginnings of the unraveling of creation, into which we start to see pain, suffering, death enter into the equation. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God create a world in which suffering was possible? Well, the reality is this stems back to the nature of God himself. We know that in Christianity, the distinctive understanding of God is that God is tripersonal. That is, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God with three distinctive expressions and persons. And what we know there is that before the beginning, before creation, God in himself was relational. God exists in a divine dance of communal love within God's self. And so when God chooses to create, God creates from an overflow of the love that already exists in God's life himself from all eternity past. And when God creates in love, he is looking for a free response of love back. If I were to have, I would never do this, but if I were to have held a gun to Julia's head before we were engaged and I said, marry me, she would probably have said, yes, <laughs> because she was being compelled. Would that have been a proper response of love? The answer would be no. Why do we intuitively respond in that way? Because we know for relationship to exist properly, there needs to be the freedom of choice and loving response. God, in God's very reality and nature of love, God chooses to create out of that overflow and look for the response of love from his creation. But if, if God created robots who were forced to respond, there would not be genuine real relationship between God and his creation. Relationship would be forfeit. And so when God chooses to create for the purposes of relationship, the possibility of suffering is also there. It's not that God causes or creates suffering. It's that God creates conditions in which relationship, loving relationship is possible, which also then results in the possibility of suffering to be possible as the flip side of that relational response and free response. And so we see in the beginning God creates and suffering and evil is alien to his creation. It's not the purposes that God had. And so suffering is connected to this turning away from God, of choosing not God and entering in the things that we are seeing and talking about today.
Every society has a story to account for this fall from innocence. Every culture, every society, we have this intuitive and inheritive longing for an Eden-like existence, to go back to a state of innocence where things are not wrong, where suffering does not exist. And when Jesus comes along, we see that this intuition that things are not right, he shows us that that is true, that in his very ministry, everywhere he goes, he assaults sin, suffering, and sickness. Every funeral he goes to turns into a party because that person has been raised from the dead. Every person who is sick who comes to him is healed. And what we are seeing is the undoing of the effects of sin from the garden in the beginning. Jesus is restoring us back to God's intended way, and we see that in his ministry. Secondly, we're nearly done, is suffering is not just real. Suffering, uh, there's also purpose in suffering. Suffering is not just a meaningless activity in which nothing can result that is good. We actually see, uh, the Bible talks about uh, God working together all things for the good. It's not a purposeless reality, but God, even though he doesn't create the suffering, can work within it to bring about good. It's not meaningless. He overrules our circumstances, and he turns our wounds into scars of grace and hope. And in suffering, something incredible happens to us. We go through something that we are, and we receive a comfort in that space that we are able then to give away to others from a place of true empathy. I think, and I'm speaking for myself, that I'm more empathetic because of the suffering that I have experienced. I can love and move towards others better with more genuine love because of what I've gone through. Through suffering, maybe, just maybe, we're also able to gain a character and a perspective that we could not have gained any other way. Again, this is God bringing good, not God's necessarily purposes from the beginning. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, we see that we can rejoice in suffering. Not rejoice because we suffer. Christians aren't masochists. But we can rejoice in suffering because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The Apostle Paul's words to us, suffering is not meaningless. Listen to the words of Teresa of Avila. She was a, a mystic in the, in the early church. And she said, the most miserable earthly life seen from the perspective of heaven looks like one night in an inconvenient hotel. The most miserable earthly life seen from the perspective of heaven looks like one night in an inconvenient hotel. That's not to diminish suffering. That's to speak of the perspective that we can have because of what God can do through it. Thirdly, God is a suffering God. God is a suffering God. So if we were to channel all of our questions of suffering to one place in history, it wouldn't answer every single feeling, it wouldn't answer every single question, but if we were to channel them to one place for a moment, to that point of the cross where Jesus dies on the cross, what would, what would happen at that point if we did that? Well, we would see that it doesn't answer everything, but it does tell us this, that God is not indifferent. God is not indifferent about the sufferings that we face. Why? Because he himself has experienced them. 
God didn't choose to stand off when human beings decided to turn away. God decided to enter in and do something about it. And in Jesus, what we actually see is on the cross, God is taking on the sin and the suffering of the world onto himself. He enters into it. He enters into it. He suffers with us. We are not alone. We are not cosmically alone in our pain and our suffering. And then finally, God's plan is to remove suffering entirely from the creation altogether. See, Jesus' suffering begins a process of the extraction of all suffering and pain from the created world. It wasn't what it was supposed to be in the beginning, and it's not how it's going to be at the end. And the hope we have is God himself wiping away our tears. That's a very intimate image. How close do you have to be to wipe away tears from the face of someone you love? And the scriptures tell us that God himself will come close and will wipe away the tears from our face in that day. Revelation chapter 22, we're going to finish with this, in the message paraphrase, says, look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death is gone for good. Tears gone. Crying gone. Pain gone. All the first order of things gone. So what we see in contrast to other worldviews, other responses from other belief systems is we see Christianity, I think, my opinion, you're free to disagree, that's why we have Q&A, in my opinion, provides a robust framework for naming the reality of sin, suffering, and death that we see in front of us and of responding to it with hope as well as we face it in the midst of it. This is not how it was supposed to be. This is not how it's going to be. But it's not just a long-range hope of one day maybe things will be better. In the actual moment of suffering itself, we have hope that God can use it for good, that he can bring meaning out of it. I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that made some sense. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Give him another round of applause. Thank you, thank you. Tough subject. Uh, my name is Steve. In case I've, if I haven't met you before, my wife and I, we're lead pastors here. And uh, it's my privilege. I've been looking forward to this. It's my privilege to, uh, to pose the questions that you've, you've been asking. And uh, we've had a few come in. And uh, throughout, even during our Q&A, if you're at Westside, if you're online, or if you're at Battersea, or even here, just text, uh, text those questions in, and uh, we'll hopefully get them in. I've, we've got some great questions, actually. I've amalgamated a few, that, uh, several that have come in. Should I be nervous? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, almost like, go, so some of the questions are around, does God allow suffering? And does God cause suffering? Uh, one question was, a form of suffering we see is from disasters, from war, uh, natural disasters. And so people may struggle with this idea that God is either in control of nature to begin with, or he has the power, or, uh, and he has the power to stop it. How, how do we respond? Great. Great question. So... <laughs> 
So they are, that's, really, that's a really good question because there are two forms of evil that we usually speak about. One being moral evil, so uh, things done against you potentially or things that you've done against others that are more morally uh, related. Or there are... Or there are evils that are called natural evil, so things that we see in creation in the world uh, that are not necessarily because of one individual's moral failure or evil, but because of the, um, the natural world in which we live in. And I, I hinted at this a little bit in the beginning where I spoke about the reality of God wanting free people to be in relationship to himself. And there's a difference between God creating a world in which the conditions for free relationship and suffering are possible, and God being the author of evil and suffering. Those are two logically distinct things. Because God in himself is wanting to create a people who can relate to him freely, there's also that possible response of saying no. And there's two, So there's two big things we see uh, said of God in the Bible. One is that God ultimately will accomplish all things according to his purpose. The second thing we see is that human beings are responsible for how they live and how they act. And so if God is the author of all forms of evil, therefore it seems to me at least to be logically impossible to hold human beings to account. Because if God, if you can trace responsibility all the way back to God as the first mover of that particular evil, then it's not human beings who are at fault. They're just instruments of evil. It's God who's culpable because God is the author of that. But everything we know of God from Scripture is that God is good, is that God doesn't tempt people to evil or to sin. And if God calls murder and the like sin, then it would be logically inconsistent um, for God to be the one who causes or tempts people to a sin like murder or anything else, um, which he has called murder himself. So I hope I'm not confusing the situation a little bit, but what I'm trying to separate out is the, the difference between God allowing things to happen and God being the author or the cause of those particular things. And because God holds human beings morally accountable, ultimately it's because they're, they're, we're accountable because they're actions that we've undertaken freely of our own will and volition. And so I think that's a really, really important thing. And, and that's something that we see in society at large beyond just the consideration of Christianity is in our legal system. We believe that people are free enough to be held accountable and culpable for the acts that they do, right? Um, otherwise, we would just say, well, no one is actually ultimately accountable because they couldn't have done anything else. They could not have done other. But because we can do other, we are accountable before God and accountable in even something like the legal system. So I don't want to go on too much further, but what I just want to finish on is the natural evil that we see is that, is I think the Bible speaks to, is being a, a response and a reaction to that turning away from God, where it's not just human beings that experience pain, suffering, and a fracturing in their relationships and in themselves. It's the created order itself that the Bible says is, is groaning, is, is under this weight of unraveling and fracturing. Great. Thanks, Mike. Um, talking about human beings, if, if again, amalgamation of a few, few questions here, if God created us as human beings and if he created the world, why, <clears> did he, why didn't he just remove suffering from it in the first place? Why did God allow suffering? Well... So if you think about it in terms, so this, this could get really philosophical, um, but if you think about it in terms of the best possible world, 
that God could create? What, what is the best possible world that God could create? Is it a world in which absolutely no suffering existed? Well, that would be a really great world. And that is God's intention with the world. We, we see it moving in that direction, but it's not our experience now. Is that the best possible world, though, if we were to think about it a little bit more deeply? Because if, if God were to create a world in which there was no possibility for suffering, there would also be no possibility for relationship with him. And so the, what God essentially, I, I believe, is, is doing in creating this world in which we see the potential for suffering and the actuality of suffering is God is creating a space in which it's also possible in this world to know him and to have a relationship with him. If God were to remove all suffering, God would have to remove all people um, and all possibility of relating to those people. And so what I, what I think is happening is God is, is creating this world for us to know him. And in this world, as subsequent to suffering that has entered into it, uh, has also created hope and purpose and possibility in that for relating to him and to give compassion and restoration as well. So I think, the, I think all of these are linking, linking back. Did, I, did that make sense? Did I not answer that very well? Ask them. <laughs> I'm happy to not be answering that well. If I didn't, come and chat to me afterwards. Uh, we want to carry on these conversations. There's a whole bunch of questions coming in just for time that we, we won't have time to do today. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to create a triple uh, 20 Zoom where we'll have an hour of 20 minutes talking more, 20 minutes of some of the questions that haven't been, we've unable to answer today, and then 20 minutes where we can just uh, begin to process together. So uh, watch mm. out for that on the Sunday the 15th of May. That will come up. Um, talking about the future, you talked about if there's no if if there's no pain now, there's no relationship and there's no uh, there's no joy in the pain. When it, when we get to heaven, um, and heaven there's there's no suffering. God's going to wipe all the tears, all the pain. Will it also have no relationship? <laughs> Based on free will. If, if today, if, if here and now is based on free will and it's about relationship, what's the point of human beings without suffering? Why heaven? No breaks, no breaks in this place, just, just intense questions. Um, answer, the truthful answer is I don't know. Um, I, I don't know exactly how that is going to work out in the future. Um, my, if I were to give a best guess, which is the only thing I can do, um, I would say... I would say that the process of us being formed into the image of Christ and of ultimately being placed in that new... So the future of, of whatever God's future is is not an, a kind of evaporation of people from the physical material world. It's, it's not going to be on clouds with harps. Um, it's new heavens and new earth. And in that future, God's future... I think the process of us moving towards that as people in relationship with Jesus is that we are further and deep, more deeply uh, conformed to the image of Jesus in that process. And what that means is that just as Jesus only wanted to do the will of the Father, we continue in a process of growing in that desire to only want to do God's will. Where those gaps remain between our, our desire to do that will and our freedom not to do that will, uh, I don't know how that works. I don't know what that process is of closing that gap between our desire to do it and uh, our freedom not to do it. That is a mystery. But I also know that in that place, we will desire to do God's will. and We will want to be like God in how we live towards each other and in ourselves. And I think that's my best guess.
Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went out to I went out to Ballam one morning, and I was just asking passers-by, what are some of the blockages to faith, or what questions do you have? And m half the people that spoke to me said, asked this question. Uh, why do Christians and Christian leaders cause people to suffer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is true. Um, there's no point denying it. Uh, if, we look, if we look at history, if we look at today, if we look at some of the news that's been coming out of all sectors of the church globally, this is true. There's no, there's no point denying that Christians have caused pain and that Christian leaders have caused pain. And I, I do, if you have experienced that, if you have borne the brunt of that, I, I truly do want to say sorry. Um, that, that is not what is supposed to have happened. That is not how it's supposed to have been. Christians and Christian leaders are supposed to be people uh, and places of safety. Um, so I'm, I'm truly, genuinely sorry for that. I think what we see in those cases is that actually it's not a Christian problem. It seems to be a human problem. Um, the human problem is that we cause each other pain. And the, the question is, well, what do, we, what do we do about that? What answers and solutions do we have for the pain that we inflict on each other and see around us? What tools and resources do we look to and, and, and take hold of in our process of healing and responding? And uh, I think what also happens here is we need to be so careful to separate Christians from Christ. Um, Christians, at the best of times, though they are meant to reflect Christ in and to the world, are, are really poor shadows. Um, of, of the substance, you know, of who Jesus is. And at this point, it's, it's helpful, though really difficult, um, to try and separate how Christians behave from who Jesus is and what he would have done. And the question we need to ask is, is this behavior consistent with the person or the founder of this particular belief system uh, or faith? And the answer, clearly, as we look to who Jesus was and what he did, is no. The hurt that Christians cause is absolutely inconsistent with the healing and restoration that Jesus brought in his ministry. And so again, if that, if that is you, and you've experienced pain, and you are carrying pain right now because of Christians or Christian leaders, I don't want to minimize that in any way. Uh, but I do want to say, could you, could you consider looking at Jesus and asking, what does he say about this? And what does he do about this? What, does, what is his response to the pain and the suffering that I've had from his disciples and in his name? And, and so I, without minimizing it, I'd want to say, let's, let's try and look at Jesus and, and see how he responds. Thanks, Mike. Okay, we got, uh, we've got one more. We've got a, a quite a few questions about what do we do now? What do we do here and now? One that's literally just come in. Um, uh, there, there was talk about learning from suffering and how it brings us closer to God. Are we then saying that some sufferings are sacrifices to bring us closer to God? An example, if a non-believing family member passes and we become closer to God through that suffering of that, were they just a sacrifice for our gain to get closer to God? And then I've got one more after that. One more? <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll respond to this um, quickly. I, um, I, it's a brilliant question. I would say no um, is my answer. I, any good God can bring from suffering does not point to the goodness of suffering itself. Like, suffering is not good. Suffering is, is an enemy. Suffering and pain is an enemy. 
that God is able to work through and bring good from. But it's, suffering in itself is not good. Anyone who's suffered or seen suffering knows this. It, this does not feel good. It does not look good because it isn't good. It's not the way things were supposed to be. So I think to instrumentalize or make an instrument of a person um, as kind of a sacrifice so that we can become closer to God is just another kind of dehumanizing way of looking at suffering. Um, and that's what suffering can do. It can dehumanize. And actually, we, uh, we don't want to look at it in that way. So no, I would say suffering is not good, even though God can break good from it. That's really good. And so if we, what do we do in the immediate moments of suffering or traumatic events? How can we see God's love in the midst of great pain? Yeah. I... This is, this is a hard one, Steve. I might, I might need you to chip into this, having personal experiences of, of this recently. But I think what we, what we need to start with is owning that it's painful. Um, sometimes there's a, a kind of Christian response that seems to kind of be a triumphalistic response of like just don't, don't admit it or don't allow for it or don't, don't talk about grief don't talk about pain, just talk about God's good, God's good all the time, all the time, God's good. You know, those things are true, and we do need to make those declarations. But when we are in pain, I think we need to say it. We need to own it, we need to admit it, and that's the first way we can start to move through the pain. The second thing is to remember that Jesus is the man of sorrows. Not just to remember it, but to come to him in that vein, in that place. Jesus is spoken of as the man of sorrows. Jürgen Moltmann, I didn't actually mention him, uh, is someone who wrote a theological book called The Crucified God. He came from a prison camp uh, in World War II. Coming out of it, he was asking, how do we make sense of what we've just been through? World War II prison camp. After all that has happened, wh where, is, where was God in the prison camps? Where was, where was God in Dachau? Where was God in Auschwitz? And he said, well, how, do we, how do we answer these questions and bring God into this? And he said, the only answer is in looking at the crucified God, the God who was in the camp, the God crucified himself. Um, and I, there is something about something beautiful, but not just like aesthetically, something profound ex existentially, emotionally, of coming to a God who has been crucified, a God who has experienced sorrow. And I think, I think there is healing, possibility for healing, coming into that space, not having to have it together, but realizing that God meets us in that space of brokenness and identifies, um, sympathizes because I, he himself has been there. I, I trust what God has says about suffering because God has experienced it. And as we're dealing with our own pain, knowing God has undergone suffering, has been crucified himself, uh, I think has incredible ability to, to meet us and to move us forward in the pain. Really Do you want to add anything? It's really good, Mike. Um, the, over the last 18 months or so and, and the last X number of years, the things that have been precious to me are, are the scriptures, uh, people and his presence. And just in the last few weeks, I've just been reading Isaiah 53, where it just, uh, verse 4, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, 
and by his wounds we are healed. And to go into the scriptures has been a really, a really powerful thing for me these last, uh, last few weeks particularly, but also the last few years. Uh, and other people, leaning on other people and um, telling other people what's going on. But also his presence. Um, just this last week uh, up in Nottingham, they had different times where they just invited people to come up. And I said to Viv before we went up on the, on the journey up, I don't care what the call is, I'm going forward. And they did a call for s- single women, or single leaders. I was like, I'm, go- I'm just going up. I'm going up. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went up because I need his presence. I need God's presence. And so there's times where you just have to fight for the presence, embarrass yourself. It doesn't matter, but just go for his presence. And um, p- uh, scriptures, people, his presence. Those are the things that have been uh, clear to me. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship bands to come up uh, across our sites at Westside, at Battersea, and here at Valham, and the worship guys there at Brighton, God bless. Why don't we stand as well? Just give Mike a round of applause as well. It's been a really Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.